Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And when they went out, went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So last week we were in this same passage and we emphasized and spoke about Judas, the reality of this traitor who is among them. Uh, that was kind of the first six verses in verses 22 and 23 of this passage really bring us up the, the, um, the difficult idea or reality of Judas among them. But that's not where we are this morning. This morning we're going to talk about one of the other very clear aspects of this passage, that being the Lord's Supper. There are two ordinances uh, throughout history in the Christian church. Two ordinances are baptism and communion. Some call them sacraments, um, but those who are a little more cautious at giving them too sacred of a place, too much of a um, magical element to them, refer, or prefer to call them ordinances. So baptism is an ordinance that's celebrated once in a person's life. You're only baptized once, but hopefully many times in the church. Um, many churches, including this one, practice something called believer's baptism. Historically, since the founding of this church in 1882, they were a, a baptism by immersion church, which is that once a person has confessed faith in Christ, they then are taken to the baptismal and, and baptized in response and is showing a public display of this, this salvation that has happened, buried with Christ, raised to newness of life. Um, baptism services are, are very wonderful, moving services. That's one of our ordinances. But this morning, we're talking about the other ordinance of the church, which is communion. Sometimes this is called the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper or sometimes the Eucharist. You can hear 
all these different ways that it's spoken of. This is the meal that we share. I, I always call it a meal, and that's, it's, I know it's a bit of a, uh, that's not much of a meal because by the time we get up here, we have a little piece of unleavened bread and a sip of juice. But it, it is meant to be a meal. It's something that we are coming and we are consuming, and we do that every week here at First Christian Church. Most of the time we don't call it the Eucharist, though that's actually a great term. It's a historical term. It has to do with Thanksgiving. But one of the reasons a lot of Protestant churches don't call it the Eucharist is because the Roman Catholic Church very much calls it the Eucharist uh, in their mass. They have a Eucharist. And, that, that's, and so they kind of have taken that term and people begin to think that uh, the Eucharist is somehow a Roman Catholic thing only. It's kind of like the word Catholic, right? When we do the Apostles' Creed, we say we believe in the one holy and apostolic and Catholic church. And everyone thinks, Catholic church? We're not a Catholic church. There's, that word Catholic just means universal. But the, the Catholic church kind of, everyone hears Catholic and they think of the Roman Catholic church. Same thing as the Eucharist. We hear Eucharist, people often think that's Roman Catholic. So we don't, we don't say Eucharist often. We say things like the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And this is the meal that we share here. Why are we talking about communion this morning? Well, it's what's next in the text. That's what Jesus is doing here at this Last Supper, is he is introducing to us this, this institution of the, of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, of the Eucharist, of what we call communion. At one level, what's going on here is, is nothing that amazing. Every Jew across Jerusalem at this time would have been celebrating this meal, this Passover feast, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, the two terms are, are often mingled together because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast and Passover was one of the meals involved with this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, it's, it's a Jesus who is a proper Jew is recognizing this event in history of the Exodus of the people of God, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, out of Exodus, uh, after all of these plagues go down in, in Egypt. And the last of them is this plague of the death of the firstborn, that we have the Passover, uh, the blood of a, of a lamb is sacrificed, the blood is put over the doorpost, and as the destroyer comes through, comes through town, and if, it, if your house has the blood on the lintels and the doorposts, then he passes over you and the firstborn in the house doesn't die. And this is a meal that they then share in remembrance of that event. Let's, if you got your Bible out, just let's do a little Bible work here. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. Because I want you to know that Darren isn't making this up. Exodus chapter 12. And you can see the heading. This is way back on page 63 in your pew Bible. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, the Passover. And here is the institution of this meal. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. The household is too small for a lamb. And then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each of you can eat, shall you make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 
Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water. Gross. Okay, roast it. But, sorry. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain, let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you are shall eat unleavened bread. So there's the feast of unleavened bread, seven days. On the first day, you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what, what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month that evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Going on with this issue of the unleavened bread. So he calls, verse 21, Moses calls the elder of Israel and says to them, Select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. 22, take a bunch of hyssop, it's a plant, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, touch the lintel and the doorpost of the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of this door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 24, you shall observe this right as a statute and for you and for your sons forever. Verse 25, and when you come to the land, this is important to what's going on here. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. With future generations, they're going to keep this service. Verse 26, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So this is Exodus 12, and you can hear this is how it exactly goes down on into Exodus chapter 13. This is what happens. But this meal then is celebrated starting on the 14th day of the first month of the year through up in perpetuity for the Jewish people. So Jesus is not doing anything unique at one level. He's just gathering to have the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like every good Jew would do. Here's the order of the Passover feast. This is from my research. Here's what I've, this is the, some of the steps they would go through. 
The first step is that a prayer of thanksgiving by the head of the house is given and they drink the first cup of wine. Secondly, they eat the bitter herbs as a reminder of the bitter slavery in Egypt. The third step is the son's inquiry, inquiry, which we just read in Exodus 12, right? Why is this night distinguished from all other nights? And then the father replies, either quoting from what Moses has said there, what God has told them to say, or giving a narration of, of the event. The fourth step, they sing the first part of the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 and 114, and they wash their hands, and then they drink the second cup of wine. Fifth, there is the carving and eating of the lamb together with the unleavened bread. The lamb was eaten in commemoration of what the ancestors had been commanded to do in the night when the Lord smote all the firstborn of Egypt and delivered his people. The unleavened bread was the commemoration of the bread of haste. They were leaving soon, eaten quickly. Sixthly, they had the continuation of the meal. They ate as much as you liked, but everyone, you had to finish the lamb, right? None of it could be left. Then the third cup is drank. Then they sing the last part of the Hillel, Psalms 115 through 118, and then they drink the final cup. Now, you can go through the accounts of, of this Last Supper in the Gospels and see these events, and Luke 22 lines up very accurately with how this would have been celebrated. You have the different drinkings of the cup, the different prayers, the thanksgiving, they sing a hymn, they drink the cup, they go out. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus is giving the importance of recognizing the history of what God has done for his people. But notice he doesn't just end with the Passover meal. He moves on into something else. He brings in a new practice on top of or in replacement of this Passover meal. He has begun a new meal in the same way, a new meal of remembrance. Just as the Passover celebrates and remembers the propitiation, the, the wrath appeasing, the, the, the covering over, the wrath appeasing, the propitiation that provided safety for the people from the wrath of God. So communion now celebrates and remembers the sacrifice that propitiated the wrath for all of God's people through the work of Jesus Christ. They're related. The Passover meal was done remembering how that at the Passover, God provided a blood sacrifice so that when the wrath of God came over Egypt, those who were covered by the blood would be passed over. They would remain safe. And in the same way, communion is taken as a remembrance of the blood that then covers those who, when they have their faith in Christ, they are covered by the blood. His work on the cross, not over doorposts and lintels, but his blood shed on the cross, now covers those who by faith are trusting in him, such that when the wrath of God comes, they will be passed over. The wrath of God does not come to them anymore. It is laid upon Christ. This is what he's saying. This is a meal of remembrance, okay? It's a, it's a meal of remembrance. This is super clear in verse 19. He took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is not a magical meal. This is not doing something uh, incredible. There's nothing like superstitious, supernatural going on in the meal. It is a meal done in remembrance. We do all kinds of things in remembrance, don't we? We just got done with Memorial Day. And I, I, I'm trying to revive the practice. As a kid, we would always, we would always cut um, peonies, all right? This year, they were too late. 
Anyone else notice that? The peony bushes, they didn't bloom in time. They came like three days later, all of a sudden, all the peony bushes that fell. So we just cut like crummy flowers out of my yard. But then we took them and you, and you go and you lay them at the graves. Of, you, you, you remember your ancestry. You remember those who've passed on before you, right? Yeah. Okay, that, that's Memorial Day. We know, we know about remembering things. Well, and this is a meal done in remembrance of what has happened. It's nothing magical. This, this doesn't become, Jesus is not teaching here that this actually becomes his body and his blood. He's not saying that it's some, it doesn't need a special blessing by a special minister to turn it into something sanctified for you to consume. That the Roman Catholic practice doctrine does have that there is a, a moment in the service where they will turn that into the literal body and blood of Jesus. That is, that is a Roman doctrine that is not held in Scripture. That, that, that was developed later on, and we can talk more about that. But I just bring it up for, to under, for a little bit of an understanding of this is primarily a meal of remembrance. This is not a magical meal. This does not dispense grace. This doesn't become the actual body and blood of Jesus. It doesn't need bless some denominations. You have to have the elements blessed by a, a certain ordained official to bless the elements. There's nothing magical in the elements. This is a meal. This is what Paul talks about also in 1 Corinthians 11. We read that every week on the words of institution, that this is to be done as he's remembering what Christ, or, or restating what Christ has said. Well, 1 Corinthians 11, 24, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is a meal of remembrance. It's a new meal. Christ is doing something new that is observed in remembrance of him in the corporate gathering of the church. I throw that in there. We could spend a lot of time on that, but I don't have time for it. This isn't something you go home and break out the saltines and the Welch's grape juice and take communion on your own. That's not, that's not, this is as the corporate body gets together, as the church gathers, we celebrate that we remember together the work of Christ on our behalf, okay? So this is all that's going on here. So it's a remembrance of him, right, in two elements. From this text, we hear that the bread is the symbol of his body. This may be elementary to some of you, but I think it's good to go through these things sometimes. This, the, the bread is a symbol of his body given for us, and the cup is the blood of, his new, of the new covenant in his blood. And we could go deeper and deeper into the meaning here. But this morning, I'd, I'd want us to see that this under, and understand that something pivotal is happening here. Something huge in the religious life of his, of his disciples is happening here. The meal that has been done hundreds and hundreds of years over and over again, this Passover meal that has been celebrated by these faithful Jews throughout the years has all of a sudden taken a turn. It's become something new. Something new is going on here. It's not that Jesus comes along and they sit down, they celebrate the Passover, and then he introduces something new. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Something new is going on here. The meal that had been observed for hundreds of years is taking a turn. The Passover was only a symbol pointing forward to the reality that was Christ's work. 
Passover was just a foreshadowing. This blood on the doorpost is a foreshadowing of the one who is going to come, who is going to put his blood on the Roman cross, not on a doorpost and lintels. It was a foreshadowing. The Passover meal is a foreshadowing of what Christ himself was going to do. Every time they observed it, they were looking in anticipation to a final sacrifice where they wouldn't have to repeat this over and over again for their substitution, for their propitiation of their wrath. But they would celebrate where Christ has done the work once for all. His blood was shed as a sufficient sacrifice. From this point forward, the Christian church, his people, this is, under this new covenant, the new thing that God was doing had been fulfilled. The wall that he'd been looking forward to accomplished there in Christ. So there is a new commemorative meal. There is a new commemorative meal. So just as the Passover pointed in many different directions, the communion meal points in many different directions also. Quickly, the first direction that it points to is obviously backwards. It's a meal of remembering that Christ went to the cross and shed his own blood. It's a remembering that the cost of our redemption was the sacrifice of the Son and that he went willingly. We reflect when we get together and have communion. We reflect on the real time in history event that Christ accomplished in his mission to rescue sinners by taking their sin upon himself. We remember Obviously, it's the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We remember what he did on the cross. We look back and we remember how that sacrifice was accomplished through Christ's death on the cross. We also, though, in looking back, remember that in this present moment, this work of, of Christ's work through faith accomplishes something for us. We remember that our current forgiveness and reconciliation is absolutely tied to his work on the cross. Your state right now before God is absolutely dependent upon that work on the cross happened 2,000 years ago. We do not come to communion as finished projects. We come as those in steady need, constant need of sanctification. We are not fully done with our sinfulness. As we seek to put to death that which displeases God, we discover then how deep our sinfulness really goes. And so we come remembering we need this meal. We need this giving of Christ every day to wash away our sinfulness. We need the work of Christ. And we need to remember the sufficiency of his work for us on the cross. So we look back to the past. We look to the present and how it affects us now. And then we look to the future as well. Do you know that? that the communion meal is actually a meal also looking forward. The, hear what Jesus says. He says, um, he took the bread, took the cup, take this, divide it among yourselves. Verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In a very, Jesus is fasting from the communion meal. He is fasting in heaven now, waiting for the day when, when the kingdom of God comes, when the fulfillment of his kingdom is manifested to then share this meal with us. So this meal is taken in remembrance of the work done in the past that applies to our future and that will one day, that applies to our present, that one day will secure our future in this meal that we will actually share with Jesus. He is fasting now, but one day we will all feast together. So then where does this leave us? Okay, that's 
some, a lot of information there on what we do in the communion meal. Where does that leave you? How do you personally approach this meal? And this is a very personal and important question. This is not just some tradition that we've invented, invented out of our own fancy. Well, we kind of need something to close the service with, so let's uh, get crackers and juice and just kind of, this is, well, you didn't make this up. This is a meal that has been instituted by Christ himself. What we do now in these next few minutes is a continuation of that observance that Christ instituted. I want you to do you feel the weight of that. This has been going on in Christ's church since he inaugurated it there in the upper room at the Last Supper. The gathering of his people, eating of the bread, drinking of the, the cup in remembrance of him and of what he has done. I pray that the meal always finds us, first of all, confessing. The presence of this meal is an unavoidable message that something major needed to happen for our salvation. Our sins are not just some sort of whoopsies that God just kind of has to chuckle at and brush off. We have attempted in our idolatry to dethrone our Creator. We have rebelled against Him. We have turned our nose to God and His good creation. This meal is a flashing beacon. Something is wrong. We have transgressed. We are not right with God. And we need something from outside of us to come help us. The answer is not within you. The answer is not digging deeper. The answer is not strengthening yourself up. The answer is not making yourself a better person. The answer is outside of you. That's what the whole point of the meal is. It's something that you need that is out, that you cannot provide for yourself. It's something that you need provided for you. <laughs> that is a major conviction. The meal stands as a conviction, a condemnation of us in our own inability to come to God and be accepted. We need something from outside of us that we would be made right with God. And that's where the hope is held out to us in the gospel. This meal is not the hope that if we find enough people to tell us, hey, you're okay, you know, don't worry, it's, it's all all right, that the reality of our wrongness and of God's justice to charge us guilty will just somehow magically melt away. We need something outside of us to actually bring reconciliation to us. That's why Paul does say there in 1 Corinthians 11, he gives this, it's, and I, we've been reading it more in these past few weeks, but verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread, this is 1 Corinthians 11, 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let each person, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this meal is one that we are supposed to be aware of, that we have this deep need of something from outside of us to help us, that there is a condemnation that comes that we need to be confessing our deserved judgment. So that exists in the meal. The second way I want us to come, confessing is the first way. The second way is rejoicing. That if we take a hard look at our sinfulness and the piercing light of God's holiness, then this reality of the, this supper brings great rejoicing for us because something from outside of us has been done. If we have to confess by seeing this meal that we need something from outside of us, the meal then produces a rejoicing because something has been done outside of us. Christ has given himself. Christ has shed his blood so that everyone who looks to him with faith 
confessing, repenting, trusting in him is truly and really reconciled to God and forgiven. It, it first convicts us, but then it brings rejoicing because we see something has been done. And the third, the last thing it does is it brings unity to the church. We all come to the same table. We all come to the same table. We don't have a communion for the elites. Let's have those who are in the upper class. You come to communion over here. And those who are kind of in the middle class, you come to communion here. And those of you who are just kind of wretches, why don't you come to communion over, come to communion over here? Three, we got all these different kinds. We all come to the same communion. Clufo or hint, it's all communion for wretches. <laughs> That's the class. It's all communion for the same of us. The only ones who qualify, but that's okay that communion is only for the wretches because here's the other good news. That is every one of us. We are the ones who are in desperate need for the work of Christ to take us from those who are under God's just condemnation, those who the wrath of God is coming for. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, Colossians talks about. And what we need, the wrath of God is against sinful man. And what we need is something that would cause that to pass over. And it isn't the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. It is the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we all come. We're all laid low. And then we are united again in this hope that we have a Savior who saves every one of us. Everyone is invited to this meal. Now, not everyone should partake of the meal. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about. Not everyone should just by um, automatic re reaction take of this meal. If you do not confess the reality of your sinfulness or do not confess Christ as your only hope of salvation, participating in this meal that we're going to celebrate in one minute here only brings more condemnation to you. But if you do confess yourself a desperate sinner and trust in Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, there is no reason to ever delay from this table. There's no way to think, oh, I haven't been good this week, so next week I'm going to go out and be better, and then I'm going to deserve communion. That's missing the whole point. The whole point is that, of course, you don't deserve it. That's why you need it. That's why we come and we remember Christ's broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. There is no need to go out and work to make yourself worthy. You can't. Christ has accomplished that by his worthy sacrifice and by faith we need to lay hold of it. Let's pray. Father, help us now in these next few minutes as we prepare for communion, God, that we would find conviction, God, that you would show to us the areas of our heart that we have withheld from you, God, the, the idolatries that we live with, God, the treasuring of the created things instead of you, the creator. God, help us to see the things not only that we have done, but the things that we should have done and didn't do. God, help us to see them clearly that we would be quick to confess our shortcoming, to confess that the answer is plainly not from within ourselves and then rejoice that there is somewhere from outside of ourselves to find forgiveness, to find reconciliation. And it is the shed blood and the broken body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may everyone in this room this morning be coming with that, grabbing hold of that truth by faith, rejoicing and remembering in the sacrifice that was given to purchase and to secure our redemption. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.